You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning. So glad to be with you all this morning. A great opportunity for us to stay in sheltered from the rain, at least for a bit, and learn together from God's Word. So I'd like to invite you this morning to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of Jude. As we've been uh, with so many other books in a series, we only have one chapter here, so we're looking at verse 17 and then going to the end of the book. This will be the end of our time walking through five of the shortest books of the Bible, uh, learning about these things that we may have been tempted to overlook, these truths that we might just skim past on a reading uh, through the Bible because it's in a a short book and, and we assume there isn't much there. But to really take some time to dig into these, we find that even the smallest places God's word rings true in our lives. God is alive and speaking to us uh, through his word, and so we want to rejoice in that. I'd like to uh, spend some time this morning just as a quick reminder, a quick uh, thank you to our mothers who rejoice this Mother's Day, and, and we're so thankful for that constant sacrifice. I think mothers, probably more than, than so many others, recognize the, uh, the value or the significance of how uh, of the idea that you have to actually work at something to see change in something. These, these kids don't, uh, when you leave them to themselves, they don't get cleaner. Um, they don't stay fed and get healthier, um, on, on, quite on the opposite. Um, they, they will become dirtier. They will not eat um, or forget, and you'll hear all about it. And so as we've been thinking about the book of Jude here, one of the things that we've been thinking about is, is this word keeping. What is it? What is it doing? And we've already spent some time considering the word as he started right out at the beginning of the book, speaking about God keeping his people. But then these others who did not keep their place, the angels. And in this final section, Jude is turning to the immediate application for his hearers. And he wants us He wants his hearers, he wants us to hear this message, that we have a task to do, that we're not going to leave off reading this letter without something that is is for us. And the key thing that he's telling us is that we should be keeping ourselves in the love of God in verse 21. And so that's the key thing that we're going to be considering this morning is this idea of keeping ourselves. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? We're going to see as we walk through this, kind of separate it out into different ideas about this idea of keeping ourselves in the love of God. We're going to see why we would need to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're going to ask ourselves, what does it look like to keep ourselves in the love of God? What does it look like on the inside? And what does it look like on the outside? And then finally, we're going to ask ask ourselves, what's our motive for doing it? Why do we do it? What drives us? What propels us? What's the catalyst for us? And so I think this is a great time for us to consider as we do have these annual reminders, just like with, with the, the reminder from others, we have uh, spring, we have the rain falling, which means the grass is growing, which means there are weeds also growing, and we're seeing those. Some of you are, uh, maybe have, have taken to doing some spring cleaning, and you're looking around your house, and you're saying, what happened? How is there this much mess, dust, all of it? How is it here? 
And we're reminded that these, these tasks of keeping, of housekeeping, of grounds keeping, that keeping is something that needs to be done and it needs to be active. Now here in the, in the letter of Jude, we're not thinking specifically the thing that we're keeping is in the love of God. And what's come up is not weeds and it isn't dust. He says it is certain persons in verse four that have crept in unnoticed. And I think all of us, we talked about in, in ABF this morning about sometimes it's hard to remember um, illustrations or ideas long past. Um, but I think we're going to take a long time to forget the idea that Rush talked about a couple weeks ago of having someone living in the walls of your house. <laughs> that one's going to stick, I think, for a little while. That someone has crept in unnoticed. They're eating the food, and you don't realize that they're there and the damage that they're doing. And that's what's happening here in this letter. This church has had people come in, but they're ungodly persons. They're persons marked out for condemnation. These are people who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude's concern here is that these people who crept in, they're denying Christ as Lord. They're abusing grace. They are, if left, left unchecked, leading others astray. And that is so true in our church, in our churches, and in our lives. That if we aren't careful, if we aren't mindful, if we aren't deliberate to keep, then we will slip. We've, we will forget. And so why do we need to keep? Let's look together at verse 17. Read this together. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And so Jude is again reminding us what his key purpose, what he's getting at in this, is that he wants his hearers to pay attention. And he wants them to look. We see at the beginning of verse 17, this, this contrast where he's been describing the judgment that's coming on these folks. And he's saying now, but you, faithful believers, here's the task I have for you. And he tells them the key thing that they need to do first is to remember and what are they remembering? They're remembering the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. And then he does something interesting. It's one of only a handful of places, although there, there are certainly a few, where he quotes another book from the New Testament. It's not going to the Old Testament. He's going to the New Testament. And he's reminding us of the words of Peter, those words that Pastor Kevin just read for us a few moments ago, that there will be mockers. There will be people coming to you in the last days and they will be following their own ungodly lusts. And so Jude is doing the very thing that we talked about last week and the thing that we spent some time in community group considering, which is that one of the key tasks for us as Christians, if we seek to be faithful, is that we want to try to take our understanding and put it underneath God's word. And allow God's word, scripture, to interpret our experience. 
And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, look, these people are a part of your, uh, they're around you right now. They're having conversations with you. They're talking with you. They're trying to lead you astray. And I want you to recognize that these are people that you should recognize from Scripture. Because the Apostle Peter warned you about these folks, that they would be leading you astray, that they would cause you to forget the gospel, that they would cause you to treat something else as Lord and Master instead of Jesus, that they would cause you to forget grace. Now, I think sometimes when we hear warnings like this, we, we hear them in the abstract. And it can be very easy for us to just kind of say, yeah, I mean, I can see how that happens. But, but when was the last time that somebody just walked into the church and they said, well, Jesus isn't Lord. And that wasn't a big deal. That stopped everyone in the tracks. And so uh, hold on a second. Because if we imagine that happening in our kind of situation, we, we wouldn't let that slide. We wouldn't let that slip by. But I think if we're careful, if we really consider the things that are happening around us so frequently, we might be more ready to recognize the reality of this, that there really are dangers facing even us. That right now, on any given day, at any given time, in the conversations that you're having with others, in the things that you're, you're reading online or the things that you're watching, you're being sold another version of what the good life looks like. You're being told, this is success. This is happiness. And if you don't have this, then your life is meaningless. Or you need to cut off relationships. Or you need to run and restart and find yourself. They're selling a version of what success and happiness looks like. But it's a success and a happiness that's found apart from the God we were created to love and serve. If we read the Bible consistently, we will find that there is no other lasting, satisfying happiness to be had outside of our God. He is the only one. That's the only place. And yet, we can so often be tempted to believe that we need to have this thing or that thing. We need to move on to, to this stage of life or, or do that sort of thing. Or we need to have this happen with our health or this happen with, with this part of our lives or our children or this or that. And if not, there's no happiness. But rather, when we listen to, to God and his word, he tells us there is blessing in the sorrow. There, there's blessing in the midst of these difficulties that we just sang about a moment ago. Suffering in this life is not evidence that God has forgotten or left us. God is always with us. Jesus is moving towards us. We should not forget that. We're told that in verse 18 here, these folks who are creeping in are called mockers. They are looking at Christians. They're looking at the things that, that we say are important and we say matter. They're looking at all the things that I just said about Jesus and the good life and this and that, and they're saying, that's ridiculous. Who needs that? They're not going to listen to it. They won't have it. 
And what we find here is, is what it says is that they are following after their own ungodly lusts. And I think this is a good moment for us to, to remember and think about this, that that is not just true of these certain folks who crept into the church that Jude is addressing. All humans, every last man, woman, child, all of us, apart from God, would chase after our own ungodly desires. I want this or I want that, and I don't care what God says about it. And on the back end, what we'll do is we're, we're masters at this. We'll come up with justifications for why it's okay. He deserved for me to say that to him. This is, this is what should have happened. And we come up with rationalizations and justifications. And again and again, there's, it's fascinating. There's a whole field of, of research in psychology, basically, that just says that people want to do, that people are going to do what they want to do. And then they're going to justify it afterwards. And we read our Bibles and we say, yeah, that's exactly what people do. We follow our own ungodly lusts and desires. We want what we want when we want it. And if God doesn't intervene, that is where we are left. You know, when I was in uh, all, all the way through my school, one of the things that schooling, one of the things that I hated was repetition. When somebody just started saying something that I already knew, that drove me nuts. I can remember in uh, middle school and high school going reviewing math problems and things like that. That drove me so crazy with that class. Like, we already went over this. I know how to do this already. Let's move on to the next thing. And constantly throughout, so when I started college the first time and I had to take a history class, I, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up here on, on March 15th here pretty soon. If any history buffs, we know the Ides of March is a significant day in history. That's the, the day that Julius Caesar was warned of, at least in the story, the, the play from Shakespeare, that he, would, that he should beware of. And that's the day that when he showed up, he was stabbed by his associates. And they killed him. Well, I knew that. I'd done Shakespeare. I'd read history. I'd followed all these things. And I can remember in college when I uh, took a history class and they had one of the questions about the death of Julius Caesar on it, I looked at it and I laughed and I thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. And I proceeded to write down as the answer to how did Julius Caesar die that he drowned in a river. <laughs> now, <laughs> as, as soon as I saw it afterwards, I, I knew exactly what I had done. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. I know how Julius Caesar died on the Ides of March. It's famous. He was stabbed at two brute. That's, that's a famous line. But it was, a, it was a reminder that in my pride of running along, thinking that I know everything and I don't need to review, I can easily slip. I can forget. I cannot remember some of the things that are so basic that I should not forget that I should never forget. And so we're reminded here, just like we were in ABF at the end, of this truth that forgetting is what we do. We need to keep in the love of God because if we don't work at it and if we don't do it, forgetting is what we will do. 
The first use for us this morning is recognizing that forgetting is your default mode. Just like a computer comes with default settings, God has so designed our brains that we're great at recognizing usually relevant information and discarding information that doesn't seem as relevant. The problem is that in our sin, we no longer recognize some of the most fundamental truths of God as essential and as important. And we disregard them. We forget them. Forgetting is our default mode. And if we don't recognize that this morning, then the idea of trying to deliberately work to keep in the love of God will not seem significant. It will not seem important. So our task this morning begins with recognizing that forgetting is our default mode. It's our default setting. But then what are we to do? In verse 20, we read this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so as we ask ourselves about keeping in the love of God, we saw first why we need to do it and why it's so important. The next thing as we see is, is what it is, but it begins with what it is on the inside, what it is to us before God, just you and God. It begins there. In contrast to these who are worldly-minded, devoid of spirit, we see you, beloved, here is what you should be doing. Just as in verse 6 we saw the angels did not keep their own domain, we are told now to keep in the love of God. It's a repetition of this word. And from the very beginning in, in verse 1, God the Father we, the letter is addressed to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And so this keeping task that we have, first of all, mirrors God's keeping task of keeping us. In verse 20, we're, we're given the beginning of three phrases that help describe for us what this keeping looks like. The first is building yourselves up on the most holy faith. So we have this image here of building. This image is used all throughout the Bible, especially a lot in the New Testament, as the church is described as a building that's, building, that's being built up. In this, because this isn't exactly the same as the usage we see in Paul and other places, Jude is, I think, using this image as a contrast to what's happening to the, these others who are coming under judgment. Read it here in, in verse 12 and, and 13 from last week. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Listen, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Do you hear those, those phrases? 
You're the way they emphasize the way that these people who are under judgment are in transit. They're transitory. They're, they're moving. They're blowing away with the wind. In contrast, Jude wants us to be fixed on a firm foundation, like a building built in place that will not be moved. The wind can blow at it all at once, and it's not going to blow off like, like, a, like leaves from a tree. Instead, it needs to be built. When we hear that, I think we can think of a, a good comparison in Scripture. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, you remember, when Jesus talks about the man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, only one of those houses is going to be left standing. And it's the one who built his house on the truth of what Jesus taught, the wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the sort of thing that we see here when we're told that we should be building ourselves up on your most holy faith. When I think about this picture of building, uh, one of the things that I, that I think about and I think that we should all think about is that this is something that takes effort. Many of you, I assume, uh, have been to Ikea. You know, Columbus is a, is a place with an Ikea nearby. And you've bought those pieces of furniture and you have them come in in a box, and they don't build themselves. <laughs> you have to get them out of the box. You have to look at the directions with the little people, the stick figures, and you have to figure out how to build it and put it together. Building is not something that just happens. It's something that we have to, we have to work at. We have to do. We take part in. And so one of the things that keeping ourselves in the love of God looks like is it looks like building yourselves up, this active task of building. The next phrase that's used is praying in the Holy Spirit. So what does this keeping look like? The next thing is it's praying. It's prayer in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to say that we're praying in the Holy Spirit? Well, I think there's a few things we can say about that. One would be that it's a, it's a pretty clear contrast between the others who he says who are worldly-minded in verse 19, devoid of the Spirit, so they don't have the Spirit, but you, on the other hand, you should be praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit, I think, means probably at least a few things. Prayer in the Holy Spirit is a prayer that is empowered. It's it's a prayer that has power. It accomplishes work. As we see in other places in Scripture about the prayer of a, of a righteous man accomplishing much. Prayer of holy, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit is not, uh, is not an inactive prayer. It isn't just words. You're taking part in the purposes of what God is doing in the world around you. So praying in the Holy Spirit at least is a prayer with power, I think that we can also say that praying in the Holy Spirit is not dead or repetitious prayer, but rather it's alive and living. It, it has to do with a, with a relationship between living individuals. It's speaking to one another. It is alive. It is living. It's powerful. It's alive. But I might say, too, that prayer in the Holy Spirit is a is a, is a dependent prayer. 
I think one of the things that can happen when we talk too much about prayer and, and what we need to do and what prayer should look like is that we hear, oh, it has, to, it has to be powerful and it has to be living. And so I got to just work myself up and make sure that I'm in exactly the right emotional state to be able to have powerful prayer. And I got to say it just this way. And I got to do it exactly like this. And, and again, the truth that we just considered this morning about the, the intercession of Jesus on our behalf is such a comforting truth. But the, the Holy Spirit empowers our prayer It doesn't get to God because we checked all the right boxes and did all the right things. Our prayer is heard by our Father because of Jesus Christ, because of the Holy Spirit working on our behalf. And so as we consider praying in the Holy Spirit, we hear it as powerful. We hear it as alive. And we hear it as dependent on the work of God, not merely on ourselves. The third thing that we see here about keeping yourself in the love of God on the inside is found in verse 21, where it says, we are waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Once again, we can see that Jude is deliberately contrasting what you, what you and I should be doing against what these other folks who are creeping in and who are, who are wandering and ungodly. See, for them, it's black darkness that awaits them. Judgment awaits them. That's what they will find. But we wait for Jesus. We wait anxiously We are looking forward with expectation for that day. Why? Well, first, because we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't judgment that awaits us as believers on that day. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, if you know that you are a sinner and that Jesus came, became one of us, took on our flesh, died in our place when he did not deserve it. He did not sin. And he rose again. He took our sin into the grave with him. And he came out on the other side, bringing us new life, beginning something new. And the task that is for us is to turn from our sin and to rest and trust in Jesus. And so when we believe that, What we will find on the day of judgment is not judgment and darkness and torment and being blown away. It's not rebuke or any of the things that we found in the previous weeks. What we find is mercy. And so we long for that day. We're also told that it's to eternal life. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is to eternal life. No more death. No more of sin reigning in the world, but Jesus Christ reigning perfectly. We long for that day. We wait for that day. And so for us, each of us personally, keeping ourselves in the love of God involves these three things. It involves building ourselves, or I'm sorry, it involves Uh, Yeah, building ourselves on the most holy faith. Building, praying, 
waiting. When I think about this idea of waiting, I think, uh, what does that look like or, or how do we do that? I think we, we long for it and maybe in some ways we consider it. But one picture that I just, I found helpful this week as I was considering it is, you know, anyone who's ever traveled with kids, you, you know and you've heard those four dreaded words. We ban them on our car trips as much as possible. You know what they are? Are we there yet? You know, for a long time with our kids, we actually wouldn't even share too much information about what was coming up on the calendar because of the constant, like, expectation of, like, is it time yet? When is that? What day is it? When they, especially when they didn't have a great concept of time and, like, everything is going to be tomorrow or, like, immediately. If you tell them something's two weeks out, you're in for two weeks of just constant. <laughs> is it time yet? When is it? When is it going to What day is it? I think, that, I think that's a great common grace picture of waiting anxiously, of expectation, the excitement of of finally arriving and not just waiting hungry and needing to go to the bathroom in the car, but finally arriving, asking constantly. And so as we consider the inside, the, the internal part of keeping in the Holy Spirit, I think we can sum it up this way as a simple thing for us to consider to do in the coming weeks is to put effort into watchful, expectant prayer. Let's let's pray like those children waiting to arrive. Let's pray like like the parable we read about in the Gospels, knocking on the door and won't stop knocking. Watchful, expectant prayer. Because if we believe the things that we say we believe about the intercession of of Jesus, about the power of the Holy Spirit in our prayer, then we know that there's power. Something is happening. Something that began before the foundations of the world and will last into eternity with consequences that none of us can even begin to see. The very purposes of God are at work in you and I when we submit and speak to our Father, asking him for his kingdom to come, pleading, are we there yet? So those are some things that keeping in the love of God looks like for the inside. But Jude doesn't stop there. He keeps moving forward, not just on us and God and that part of it, but he moves forward to what does it look like on the outside when we're looking at others? He says this in verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. There's a lot in these verses. As I was considering them this week, I think there's a lot for us to, for us to think about. There are many, many things that are happening in our uh, churches and in our lives and in the communities that we take part in that are reflected here. And so I want to spend some time thinking about this. 
we're told in two places here that we should have mercy. Again, just like we're waiting for the mercy of Jesus and that gives us comfort and hope and confidence, we're told that we can reflect that mercy of Christ outward to those who are around us. We can show mercy. And the first thing that we're told is that it is on those who are doubting. Now, how do we understand this idea of doubt? I want to spend a little bit of time considering doubt this morning, but I think one of the first things that we need to do before we dive right in is we need to try to understand as best as we can, what does Jude mean? What here is he getting at when he says, some who are doubting? And I think the best way for us to begin to get at this is to to really look at what we've already seen about how he approaches these two groups. He's seen that there are some creeping in who are leading the church astray, and there are others who are trying to be faithful, and and he's speaking specifically to them. And so there are these, these two groups. And if you look throughout the letter, some of the commentators will kind of break this out into tables so that you can think about them. Where on the one side, you have these scoffers rejecting the truth, rejecting the tradition. And on the other hand, we have those who are remembering, who are faithful. On the one hand, we have those who are creating division and tearing down. But on the other hand, there are those who build themselves up, the unity of the faith. There are those who are going the way of godless desires, and then there are those whose way is the most sacred faithfulness. There are those who are, who are physical and those who hate even the garment stained by the flesh. We've already seen those who have no spirit contrasted with those who pray in the Holy Spirit. And there are those who are expecting judgment or who should. That's where they're headed. And then there are those who are awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we have these two groups, this word of doubt is also uh, means uh, wavering or being kind of between two places or two opinions. And so if we already have these two groups laid out, what we also then see is that there are some who are on the fence. There are some who aren't so sure. And so this acknowledging this group, acknowledging this, these people in this letter will help us to think about how we should address and consider doubt in our faith and in those around us. I guess there are a few things we could say about that. I've noticed that in the last several years, uh, several years ago when I would uh, speak in, talk to a group or something like that, most people didn't know exactly what was being discussed when someone talked about deconstructing their faith. Now, I found, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems much more common now that many, many people are talking about deconstructing when they're coming out of a Christianity that they were born in or that they uh, believed beforehand. And now it's becoming this very common thing where people are thinking about the faith that they grew up in, and they are uh, questioning everything about it. And their entire groups, podcasts, YouTube channels, tons of stuff set up to people who are walking along this path of trying to, to get rid of the Christian faith that they grew up with, that they were taught. And it's a shame. 
Because one of the things that I hear again and again from different folks is that they, they found that when they raised questions, hard questions about the faith to brothers and sisters, to Christians, they were not engaged around those difficult questions, but that they were just told, eh, have faith. Don't worry about it. Read your Bible, pray about it, you'll be fine. That's not what's happening here. Actually, this text speaks to us in a much better way. We don't need to be the sort of people who will run from doubt, but we're also not the sort of people that just encourage like, oh, let's everybody just doubt and there's no truth and we don't know what's happening or any of the rest of it. Let's just all wander along the path. There's a much better way for us that's laid out here in Scripture. So let's, let's look at this. This text speaks of those who are doubting, those who are not so sure about this faith that they're being built up on. And so this text speaks first to those who are doubting. It's good to hear from God's word that doubt is not something unheard of, uncommon, or taboo. It's not something that's just a a private matter that you can't talk about, that God's word doesn't deal with or doesn't talk about. From the very beginning, doubting, wavering, being unsure about exactly where you fit in the faith or what you think about it is something that has happened. It also, this text speaks directly against an overwhelming narrative that I hear when I hear people questioning the faith in this way, is that Nowadays, it's different. Now that we have the internet, now that we have people uh, asking better questions, now we know things scientifically that we didn't know back then. Uh, Now we know how the Bible came to be or any of these things, and they didn't know these things back then. The case is, is being made that now in the 21st century is different. And I think Jude is telling us right here that right from the very first century, that was a common experience of, some, of many in the church. They were unsure about the faith. They had questions they didn't know. There were these two sides, these two groups, and the one was the, the one that they, that they heard at, to begin with, but these other folks who were speaking up, man, that sounds awfully compelling. Maybe I'll just run off, leave the faith, follow them, listen to what they're saying. This isn't something that's unique to the 21st century. And so this can also help us, as we've said so many times, we want to take our experiences and we want to put them underneath Scripture so that Scripture defines them for us. And so this is a text that can help us to see the experience of doubting with a scriptural lens instead of the ones that are being given to us from those other voices. I think it's helpful as we consider these things. Think about it like this. What we've already read from the book of Jude is that there's a coming judgment. And there are two groups. Everyone will be on one side or the other. There's no wishy-washy till the end. There's no in the middle wavering. That's an experience right now, but at the end, that's not how it will be. It will be one or the other. 
And so I think that means that our doubts can come in two different ways. We might have a kind of doubt that rests on unbelief. We've already said at this point that the, one of the default things of the, of the human heart, the way that we approach life, is that we do what we want to do, and then we rationalize why we did what we want to do it. And so very often what we'll find is that someone has already made up their mind about what they think about God. They're already doing what they want to do, and the rest of it, the, the doubt part, is just a working out the rationalization for why I'm already leaving. I'm already gone. But there's another kind of honest doubt, we might call it. And this is a doubt that drives one to God. It drives you to him. You can tell the difference one way is that this sort of honest doubt drives you to prayer. It drives you to God's people, not away from them. Think about places like in the Psalms, where the psalmists pray, God, I don't see you. God, are you there? Vindicate me, God. Why aren't you doing anything? Those are some of the kinds of prayers that we see in the Psalms. Those are prayers that have some uncertainty in them, but ultimately they're resting on a faith, a trust, because they're they're prayers. They're reaching out to God for the answers. And so this, this text can really speak to those who are doubting in that it can remind us that we need to question the very authority of why we're asking these questions. Uh, many people will phrase it like this. They'll say that you should also doubt your doubts. Why am I not believing this? Why is this particular truth hard for me when it maybe hasn't been for thousands of years beforehand? Now, all of a sudden, in this particular cultural time, this particular question becomes a, becomes a big deal. Why is that? Maybe I, should, maybe I should doubt my, if I'm going to simply doubt the faith because it came from my parents, well, let's recognize all the other things that came from our, our culture and our families and our, all the rest. Let's doubt our doubts and instead come to God to give us the authority, to speak the truth to us. And don't run from God's people. This text can also, I think, speak to, to the church. And so this is, I, I don't know, I, I would expect the majority of folks who are here this morning aren't necessarily actively dealing with uh, major doubts or threats to the faith, although I'm, I'm certain there could be some here. This text also helps us kn- knowing how we should respond to these who are on the fence, to these who are going to be led astray. And I think it's good for us to hear it because, frankly, the church has not always had the best track record on this. We're hearing many, many accounts of people raised in the church who have been sinned against in terrible, grievous ways, only to have those things covered up or hidden. And it's, I don't blame them in a way for questioning the faith, if that's the model of what it looks like. If the church has not been a great place where people can voice their their concerns, their questions, they're just told, ah, have more faith, as if that's somehow an answer. Rather, 
we are told twice in this text to have mercy on those who are doubting. At a minimum, I think having mercy is not jumping to judgment immediately. It's not jumping immediately to, to casting someone out. Because we know that there are these, these two kinds of reasons someone might be asking these questions. And we don't need to jump to the, to the one that's reactionary. Let's listen. Let's hear it out. And the, the last part of verse 23 says, On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Oh, man. These two, these two points. Snatching them from the fire, on some having mercy, they're so intertwined. I almost, I almost don't even know how to, how to go about them. We'll do one and then the other. Have mercy with fear we are told. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What's this garment? How does this work? There are texts in uh, Zechariah, for instance, chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, where he says, he spoke and said to, to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away and will clothe you with festal robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So we can see places like that where garments are used. It was used in the temple as these pure things that they would need to wear. And the New Testament, it's used throughout as putting off sin and putting on like a new garment. In Revelation, the believers there are found to be wearing pure white robes. The early church, actually, in many situations, would give someone new clean clothes or new robes when they were baptized as a symbol to help them remember that this is what it's like for you to take on new life. You've put away the old, sinful, stained, and you're wearing something new now. Well, if we're to be the sort of people who hate even the garments polluted by sin, then that means something for how we're reaching out and how we're engaging those who are struggling. It means, first of all, that we're watchful of ourselves. We know that we can be tempted as well to turn away from God. And we don't want to do that. We want to be sure that we are careful to continue to be engaged in God's word, continue to be anchored to his local church, attending our community groups, being a part of the constant life of the church around us. We recognize that, that there's, there's danger there for our own lives, and we don't want to let that happen. But it also means that we are careful. We should not be the sort of people, we, we have mercy, but we have mercy with fear. We should not be the sort of people who assume that we have it all together, and now it's up for me to reach out to others who don't. Rather, we know that we don't necessarily have to be defensive when someone accuses us or those we love of sin. We can recognize that it's real. We can work for something better. We're seeking throughout to build up 
and to honor the church, to honor our God. We don't cover up or ignore sin. And so as we engage, we do it in a way that's careful, being mindful of our own sinful tendencies and being willing to hear someone say hard words, hard truths, things that we might need to repent of. You know, as I think about a, a good model for what this can look like, I, I was reminded, some of you may know or have heard of the um, <clears throat> 20th century theologian, apologist named Francis Schaeffer. Um, he died in, I don't know, 1970-something or maybe the early 80s. Um, but one of the things that was particularly remarkable about him is he had sort of set up a retreat in the Alps, and people all through the, the 60s and the early 70s would travel there, and it's, these places are still there called Labrie Fellowships. People would go to be able to explore the faith. They had questions. They wanted to know about it, and so they could go there, and they could learn about Christianity in a place that would allow them to ask hard questions and would seek to live the life of the community together. And those still continue in name. There are places uh, all over the world now um, that, that use that model. But one of the things that I thought was most fascinating about that, as I thought about it, was that it, it didn't start as a school. It didn't start as an as a, as a organization. You know how it started? It started around a dinner table. It started by the Schaefers having people into their home and them making their home a place where it was okay to ask difficult, hard questions. And they were always willing to say, let's see what God says about this and take it right back to the scripture and take all of the crazy experiences that are, were happening in the world and bring them back under the authority of scripture to be able to point those who were visiting back to God. What a model. What a great picture for what our lives could look like if we were doing this thing seriously. If we're snatching from the fire, then it's recognizing the reality of judgment, the seriousness of this task. Brothers and sisters, let's get to it. Let's have people over. The third use is that we would place yourselves, place ourselves in the lives of others to model the love of God. Let's do this. All around us, there are folks who are not so sure about God and his word. Let's show them what God's love looks like. Let's be that place where we can ask difficult questions. Let's seek to love our neighbors well. With our last just few remaining moments, I'd like to consider these last couple of verses. We read this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So here, 
As we consider the central command of Jude, the central command of God to us to keep ourselves in the love of God, we've seen the reason, we've seen what it looks like on the inside, we've seen what it looks like to those who are around us. And finally, why do we do it? Where are we headed? Here we have the reminder. Did you notice that word again there in verse 24? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. How, why do we keep in the love of God? Because we are kept by him. That's where this begins in verse one, and that's where it ends in, this, in these final verses. God is doing the work of keeping and preserving his people. We don't do the action of keeping and loving and having mercy unless we first know it from God. Having experienced grace, we give it. That's how this whole thing works. We don't do this to earn God's love and forgiveness. We do it because we have God's love and forgiveness. Remember at the beginning as we consider that there are others who come in and they want to try to present different versions of happiness and of the good life. They want to tell us this is what you have to do. These verses instead give us that. It gives us our North Star. It orients us and it helps us to know where do we find our confidence and our hope and that we are kept from stumbling by God. He's the one who is able to do that. This is the cure to our wandering hearts. God keeps you. That's why we keep in his love. It is glory to God that drives what we do. We long to see his rule and his reign, his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority in all things. We long for that day. Are we there yet when things will be set right? We have confidence that God has completed the work and we're just waiting to see it. May it be true of us that we are a people shaped by God, a people shaped by his work. Why do we keep, how do we keep in the love of God? The final thing for us this morning, a bonus use, if you will, is simply praise. Praise be to God who is able to keep you from stumbling. You're worried about whether or not this faith is still relevant. You're worried about whether you believe the right things or can hang on well enough. But he is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory. You don't know if you're good enough, but he will present you blameless with great joy. Trust in him. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority 
before all time, and now and forever. Praise be to God. Amen. Our God, we thank you for your work on our behalf. We praise you that you are a God who is able to keep even the most hardened, wandering, rebellious sinner for you. That you continually seek after us, that we can rest and hope in you. God, I pray that you would help us be the sort of people who are willing to have hard conversations, that are willing to say, I don't know the answers, but I'll walk with you. I know God does. Help us to be faithful, to snatch others from the fire. Show us what it looks like to have mercy. God, help us to pray in the power of your spirit. Help us to build your church and our faith. Help us to keep in your love as where you're being kept by you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.